welcome to the Theology Bugcast. It's great to have you with us again. And we are live yet virtual. We are virtual yet alive. <laughs> and uh, we're here uh, talking to one another and addressing you as well. You hopefully are, are listening to us in a place where it's easy to hear us. Um, we're in places where it's easy to hear each other. We're not in a pub. We're not in a in a uh, you know an event. Uh, we are back in our respective homes and uh, here today to uh, record a show, and uh, we're glad you're with us for this. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church here in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written a number of things, including a book that just came out on Tom Bombadil. And uh, there have been a little, uh, there have been some snafus because of the supply chain stuff, (laughs) but uh, my understanding is that even though physical books are not available, uh, the audio version of the book and the digital version of the book, uh, you know, are available on the uh, official release date. We're actually uh, recording this the day before the official release date, so I am speaking in faith based on the authoritative <laughs> word of the editor. So uh, anyway, th- that's where we are. And uh, why don't we uh, go around the horn again and introduce ourselves. Let's go to you, Glenn, and then to Tom. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries, and I'm doing my best to get the Tom Bombadil look. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. You are are doing a good job of it, too, there, Glenn. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, now to you, Tom. Hello, I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, and uh, philosophy. Um, one of the places at which is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And uh, I don't have the Tom Bombadil look, but I am named Tom, so I can at least empathize with uh, that side of things. <laughs> That's right, about the right. extent of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Glenn's got the look, and you've got the name. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, we uh, are, uh, you know, here today to, to talk about a subject that uh, relates to Christmas, and it's something that Tom is going to be addressing. So, Tom, uh, take it away. What are we talking about? Okay, well, um, we're going to be talking about the incarnation and a lot of the implications of Christian understanding of the incarnation for um, fleshing out the full biblical vision um, that we were given in, in, in the scripture as it attests to Christ and, uh, and look at a lot of those implications and then kind of look at the world into which those implications first entered and then look at some of the significance of those implications for the world that uh, we're in now, um, you know, both in time, place, and history, but also the significance of what was introduced. Um, So if we go back last, I guess for listeners who will be listening to this upon its release date, Christmas will have already uh, gone by this year. They will have had the episode on um, Christmas, which we did, uh, which will be coming. (laughs) I get the dates mixed up, but uh, 
from where we are right now, Christmas, you uh, listen to it last cr- week, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Christmas in the Latin calendar, Tom, is the 25th. That's right. <laughs> I'm right now on the, uh, the January 6th. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so by, by, the way, uh, by, by the way, I saw a meme here recently, or actually it was a tweet, and it was really a, a fun one, it was an amusing one, where someone was, was – uh, responding to a, a complaint by apparently some pagan or, or atheist, uh, you know, personality on Twitter that Christians had stolen Easter uh, and the holiday of Easter and uh, the date and the celebration and all that kind of stuff. And so, so rather than try to defend, you know, our, uh, you know, selection or our, our, our celebration of Easter on that date, <laughs> this guy just came back and said, yeah, no problem. Yeah, we, we appropriate all kinds of holidays and if you guys keep it up we're gonna we're gonna appropriate Toyotathon and make it a Christian holiday and Shark Week. <laughs> and, and so I, I thought it was actually tremendous in the spirit of, uh, you know, taking dominion. Yeah. We're taking dominion over the calendar. All your holidays are ours now. That's right. <laughs> Reinterpreted and corrected. <laughs> it's, well, it's interesting uh, on that note, because we did talk a little bit about that, and that is relevant to what we're up to, so I'll kind of move into it. But I think the most telling um, aspect of the way in which God, in the gospel um, and and in Christ's saving work, has started this process of renewal of all things, I think is just the very uh, fact that the crucifixion is central to the gospel. Um, the crucifixion was not a, a, a typically a Hebraic covenant people practice. Um, it was a <laughs> pagan. It was a pagan practice. Um, and it was under pagan authorities and a pagan legal system. And so, but now I hold up a cross uh, very confidently um, with a whole set of meanings that were not implicit in the pagan system, um, although they were um, assumed um, by the saving God and brought into God's saving purposes. And as they're related to Christ, show forth their fuller meaning rather than the one that they merely attested to in their distorted meaning in the system of paganism. So maybe one of you want to run with that before we go. <laughs> Glenn? Yeah, um, it's worth noting. Some, one, you, you run, we, we talked last time about you know the, this notion that Christmas is just warmed over paganism, and I hope thoroughly debunked that for people. Okay. But one of the things that comes up a lot of times with the Jesus myth is the idea that, all of these various gods were crucified. Yeah. Um, you know, and then rose from the dead. That is extraordinarily, it, it, it's almost impossible to explain just how ridiculous that idea is. Crucifixion was such an ugly and degrading way to go that it wasn't even a word that was used in polite society in Rome. Yeah. You, you just didn't talk about it. You didn't even name it. Um, so, you know, and this is why Paul talks about the offense of the cross. If there were all these, these gods out there who were, were crucified and rose from the dead, like the Jesus Smith said, why is there the offense of the cross that he talks about in first Corinthians? Yeah. It's just, well, it's utter nonsense. So the notion, one of the things that was really offensive about Christianity in the early church was taking the cross and using it as a symbol of hope. 
or a symbol of, 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 of a new religion or something like that. It would be sort of like taking the gas chambers of Auschwitz and using them as a symbol of hope. I mean, it's that viscerally disturbing. Yeah, yeah, I in, think in that, the context of the Roman Empire. Yeah, I think I think we give too much credence to a bunch of kids who are in a rebellious stage of life in their teen years. Yeah. You know, the, a lot of this stuff, you know, that gets uh, bandied about is uh, really the kind of the the, the bile <laughs> of uh, people who just have a hard time uh, with many things in their lives, uh, authority in general. Uh, you know. Uh, you know, upright, virtuous behavior. <laughs> the, and so, you know, what ends up happening is, is, is uh, you know, stuff gets cooked up by people who are kind of cookie or kooky. And then well-meaning people uh, kind of spend a lot of time trying to refute nonsense and in so doing actually uh, give credence to the, to the, um, the objections that are being raised uh, through taking them seriously and then actually in some cases taking them to heart and saying, yeah, oh yeah, you're right. We better not do that. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it's just nuts. But anyway, uh, I, I, I agree with you, Glenn I, and, and Tom. I hope that folks listen to the previous episode and, and are at a different place now. But, but the incarnation, I think that you know, this is really great stuff to reflect on. Go ahead, Tom. Well, and, and I think this this same point can be be tied to the whole debate, the early debates about the the incarnation, because one of the things that is going on in those debates um, is the way in which the fuller reality vision of understanding God and all things in relation to God is going to be spelled out in more concrete detail as the church has to work through the biblical implications and their, their, their reality implications as it confronts interpretations of the Bible that actually have more indebtedness to alien views of reality than the biblical view. Um, and it's easy, I think, at this point to kind of point fingers and look at Arius, for example, and say, ah, heretic, heretic. But people that knew Arius would have, would have known, known Arius to be uh, quite a, a devout bishop, pious, punchy, but pious, but not as punchy as the punching uh, St. <laughs> <Saint> Nicholas. <laughs> um, but someone who was, was trying to make sense of the fact that there is only one God, and then there is some mediator between God and humanity and didn't know how to fit in the particular framework that he was working with, the reality framework, how to place the son of God um, if there is only one, one God. And so this was, this was not just someone trying to um, bring in a, a philosophy and, and deceive, you know, Everyone now, maybe later the pride bound up with defending that. It's a different story, um, but a lot of these—I mean, Origen, for example, who who did not have the privilege of living later and being having this stuff worked out, was working with the first categories he had to work with, and he too had had a hard time knowing how to place the Son of God, whether it was going to be on the side of you know the ultimate God the one God that truly is, or as something in between that. And so Christianity, when it hammered out its doctrines in Nicaea and um, Chalcedon and um, Constantinople, I mean, those, those councils, 
one of the things it was doing was taking what was implicit in the Bible, the Bible reality vision, I, metaphysic is, is the preferred term I would use, um, and it brought it from being implicit to making it much more explicit so that we could start to talk about those things in a way that did it full biblical justice rather than allowed these alternative interpretations that distorted central things about the gospel and about God and creation and, and humanity. And um, so, so, I mean, that's really what you have going on. So when Christians are working out these debates— they see something fundamental at stake. It really is the heart of what's at the center of the biblical view of reality. And so when it's looking at Jesus as the son of God, what you are getting really in the most, what you're getting is, is a much fuller depiction of what Christians understand by true divinity and what Christians mean by true creatureliness and true humanity. And so it is in the working out of the two natures of Christ fully human, fully divine, that we begin to be take what was implicit and make it much more explicit so that we could understand the relation of God to creation and humanity in the fullest Christian sense, which had hitherto um, been, been oftentimes eclipsed or not even brought, brought, brought out into the open. So these debates really forced that side of things to come out to the to surface. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I think uh, it's good that you put it, you know, laid it out in the way you did there, Tom, because it shows that uh, that you could kind of go too far in either direction using origin and areas. Because, you know, what would you have in a, you know, you know, Arianism is a uh, eclipse of the divine by the human. And then what you have with origin is an eclipse of the human by the divine. You've got kind of these uh, ways that you can fall off on either side of things. Now, obviously, when we're talking about these guys, you know, the way I put it doesn't do full justice to what they were up to, but at least it kind of gets at a certain set of tendencies or possible, uh, you know, uh, errors that you could fall into by going to either extreme. Um, I think uh, we have uh, heresies that uh, have kind of a family resemblance to those two outlooks yeah. uh, on either side, you know, Gnosticism with origin. And then, you know, you have uh, various forms of uh, kind of, uh, well, Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses or the, uh, you know, or the, uh, the Mormons, you could say, are, 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 are contemporary expressions of Arianism in the sense that you've got you know, kind of embodiment, uh, or at least uh, with re with regard to the with uh, the Mormons, and then uh, almost a, a wholesale, actually uh, contemporary version of Arianism with with Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, you know that. So, so these 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 debates or these uh, doctrines, I should say, uh, are relevant uh, today, and um, you know are I think good reasons for us to make sure that we're in touch with the work of the councils and, and uh, good Orthodox teaching. Yeah. I think too, that one of the reasons the early church wasn't overly focused on the details of the incarnation, you know, we, when we think of the incarnation, we think of Christmas, we think of mangers, we think of shepherds and angels and all of this kind of thing. Great. 
the early church wasn't really interested in that so much. And I suspect the reason is they were still trying to figure out what was going on. Once you get the, the idea that the incarnation, once it's set, that the incarnation really believe, means that the true God becomes human, that I think by itself generates more wonder and therefore more interest in Bethlehem. So you see a growth in, in Christmas practices and things like that following this. Yeah. But in the lead up, uh, you're seeing very little prior to it. So I think that that's, that's part of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's also worth noting that there, there are two verses that, that are really important here uh, from the Gospel of John. One of them is uh, John says, uh, Jesus says that the Father is greater than I. And the other one is, I and the Father are one. Yeah. How do you balance them? Mm-hmm. That's real. You know, Arius put a huge amount of emphasis on the subordination side of it. So, therefore, he is subordinate not just positionally but ontologically. But that leads to a whole series of other problems. And, and that's why they have to, to sort of hammer all of this out. Uh, I think that the conclusion of Chalcedon is the only one possible that makes sense of all the biblical material and holds it all as true. Yeah. Um, any Anything else you do, nobody would come up with this on their own. I mean, it makes no sense, logically. Nobody would dream this one up. But it's the only way of really balancing all the biblical texts. And that's that's correct. And I think what you see happen there is you see the wonder of the Christian understanding of God and how radically different it is than all other comprehensions of God and transcendence and the nature of God than anything else out there. And so when the, in one of the things I think, and you see this all the way up into this very day, even amongst the fights within the evangelical and reformed world is they're still fighting this, you know, this, this notion that keeps creeping up. Maybe, you know, it starts with a phrase by Tertullian, then, the father of uh, liberal theology, Anoff, one of them, uh, Adolf von Harnack, this kind of Hellenization thesis that the church was just so passive when it came up to these philosophies, or that was the cultural milieu they were working in. So they they uh, they just uh, uncritically or not critically enough adopted these these different terms from the pagan context and and uh, employed them, thus distorting the pristine pure understanding of the Bible, right? Um, and that, that, that the when you read patristic theology, medieval theology, Reformation theology, especially the, the scholastic reformers, this is nonsense. It's sheer nonsense. That isn't what's happening. What they're doing is having to talk about things that they didn't, that, that the biblical language implicitly affirms but doesn't speak of, and so they're using forms of analysis that help someone to speak about those things. What they do is take terms that allow them to to present that material from the, the sciences of the time, metaphysics being one, and they use them in completely new ways, right? So when you use the term uh, homoousios, um, they're, they're they're creating a new grammar with these terms that is flexible and pliable so that the content of Scripture can fill it, right? Um, they are not um, holding on to a term 
and its pagan definitions so tightly that the biblical content is not allowed to fill it and do its thing. And I think, I think that's where, I mean, sometimes that happened as they were refining this stuff, but as they started to really articulate the depth of what the biblical vision was up to, these terms were clearly redefined, and they're speaking about something new that is far more discontinuous from the paganism than it is continuous with it. Um, Chris? Yeah, I think one of the things that could help uh, some of our conservative uh, listeners who are apprehensive about uh, what you're addressing, Tom, what we're talking about, is uh, the fact that uh, in the contemporary scene, uh, some of the most uh, vehement denunciations of Hellenism come from the woke. Um, what you have in this sort of this progressive sort of uh, world of social justiceism <laughs> is a, an unwillingness to even uh, consider transcendent realities uh, and transcendent you know, categories that are located sort of in this transcendent realm that help us to think about universals as applying to all people, uh, poor, wealthy, white, black, etc. cetera. Uh, and instead you end up with a fully menentized kind of Christian uh, outlook, which is made up of good guys and bad guys, white people, black people, <laughs> poor people, wealthy people, that kind of stuff. And if you try to move the, the conversation uh, in the direction of universals, uh, the progressives, I, I had this happen all the time when I was involved in urban ministry or involved mm -hmm. with working with, you know, uh, community organizers or people at Harvard when I was there, they would all cry foul. You know, you are importing Hellenism into the pure Christian faith. <laughs> uh, you're not, you're not dealing with, um, you know, the, 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 the religion of Jesus, the revolutionary in the new Testament. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course they were blind to their own, their yeah, own okay, culture, yeah. so their own <laughs> way of sort of importing stuff. redefinition of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, when I was doing some stuff with some of the people there at, at uh, Gordon Conwell back when the days when I was doing a lot of interacting with those guys, they're all gone now. Just so, just so you know, yeah, oh, <laughs> they maybe have been replaced by other people, who, <laughs> <laughs> other people, but the people I have in mind are all gone. <laughs> they, they, they were the ones who were the most, uh, uh, like, uh, like outspoken against Hellenism yeah. were the, were the progressives, yeah. not the reform guys who had something against natural theology. Yeah. <laughs> it was the guys who were, uh, you know, denouncing, um, well, I don't need to go down that. We've gone down that road. A lot of times, I think people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and yeah, and it, you know, and this stuff is is everywhere. But I think one of the things is I'm going to turn it, turn it back to a kind of positive contribution of of the incarnation. Um, and we've talked about this before, but never in you know from this angle. And and one of the things that such um, the hammering out of this theological grammar, if you will, of using terms in distinct ways to understand the true deity the true humanity of Christ, the true nature of divinity, the true nature of humanity, and then the true nature of creation. I mean, this was all part of what was being um, given a, a, a fuller form with these debates and a, and a fuller way of articulating and expressing it, which theologians will run with thereafter. Augustine will be working out of the ramifications of that and 
and all the way up to, to, to today. But one of the things you see is it completely introduced a, a new understanding of the divine and its relation to creation and the creature. As we've talked about other times, in the world into which Christianity dropped, if you will, as it moved into the uttermost parts of the world, <laughs> um, it started to confront um, philosophies, ideas, alternative visions that had an understanding in some cases of some, something that is ultimate, that is related to everything else or is the source of everything else. And so you had, um, as we've talked about before, and Christianity found both a positive and a critical relation to certain types of Platonism, um, certain types of Neoplatonism. Um, and, but, the, but at the heart of a lot of these conceptions is that there was, there, you have basically an ultimate source of everything, a God. We'll just use the term God here. And then you have everything else that owes itself to that source. And you have different ways of construing this. But one of the things that was at the heart of it is that tended to relate the ultimate to everything else in one of two common ways. One is that they, there was kind of a shared identity between God and everything else. Um, God's identity was established how God was related to everything else. So God may be the ultimate source but he is understood as the ultimate source in relationship to everything else that he's the source of, right? So it's essential to God's nature in some ways to have everything else as part of God, if only by it coming from God, right? And so God is related to everything else. So let's just, you know, you could use any, any kind of um, description, any kind of like uh, goodness, and, and so God would be the source of all that, but God participated in it like everything else. God just participated pates in, it in a bigger kind of way, a fuller, fuller kind of way, or the fullest kind of way. But you understand it by comparison. Um, then you have the opposite side, which is contrastive, which God um, basically, he gets his identity by being different than everything else of which he's the source of, right? So you have similarity, God is similar to everything else, or God is radically different, but God needs everything else in order to understand what's different about God, right? So if creation is finite, then you need, you need that creation to show that God is infinite, right? Um, so, so what you have here is a relationship between God and everything else in which God basically needs everything else to show that God's distinct. That's the kind of the world. Yeah, and, and this... Yeah, and this is what we're what we're rejecting. Yes, <laughs> these ways of sort of thinking. Just so our, our listeners yeah. know, what Tom just described is uh, an incorrect or two different ways of incorrectly relating God to everything else. Everything else. This was kind of what was big in the in the pagan world. Now you could have some things that sounded like God really was radically transcendent to everything else. God could be understood as the nothing from which everything comes, right? The pure negation of being. I mean, we have we have all this language there. And sometimes the early Christians will will re-employ this language. So we, we have to be careful of how they're using it and why they're using it. Um, but Christianity was saying something radically different. It was not seeing God, God's identity, 
And what makes God distinct? What makes God transcendent? As merely that he transcend is different than the creation. Because God doesn't need to be the creation. God doesn't need creation to be the God that God is. This is one of the things that Christianity will talk about. God does not need the creation. And so how do we talk about what is different about this God compared to the pagan views? Well, the difference that this God has is not one in relationship to anything else. It's the difference that God's very being is. It's the way in which God alone possesses his own being. So another way of putting it is the Christian view of God is one in which God is being itself. He doesn't have being. He doesn't participate in being. He is being. And this is why when you're talking about the divine names, he names himself as I am, right? What is your name? I am, right? The self-existent one. It's the way that God possesses his own being that he doesn't need anything else in order to be that distinguishes this God from all the other kinds of gods. And so what this means is, the metaphysic is, God is such that there could never, there never needed to be a creation for God to be perfect and full and complete. God in and of himself exists in and of himself. He's a sheer existence itself. He's not augmented by creating. He's not made better by creating. There's not more God by creating. Creation, therefore, is not necessary to God. Flip it over. Creation has no being, has no um, essence, has no nature, apart from its absolute dependence on God. So the, the metaphysic that Christianity brought into this is that God could be, whether God creates or not, fully God complete, and God does not need creation. God is free, the self-existent one who doesn't need anything else to, to, to be fully God. This also means that if there is a creation, God didn't need to create it because God doesn't need anything else in order to be fully God. So it starts to show us how to understand creation. If God didn't need it, why is it? And so as Christians come to understand it from the scriptures, out of the sheer good pleasure of his will to share that fullness of life that he is with something that otherwise was nothing, <laughs> right? And so let's oh, go yeah. ahead, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it's helpful maybe to think a little bit about uh, starting points at this, at this yeah. point. Because uh, if, you, if you're familiar with, you know, classical uh, philosophy, you know, the various schools in antiquity, um, the cre- what we refer to as the creation, this reality that we find ourselves in with a small r, is, is the thing that's often the given. You know, it's, it's, and I don't mean given in the sense that God gave it, it just is. <laughs> yeah. and, and we have to kind of explain everything else but this is the thing that doesn't need explaining. Whereas when we think about, you know, the Christian understanding that you just out, outlined, Tom, it's God who is uh, the one that is, uh, you know, I guess given <laughs> and it's everything else that has to be explained. That's right. Yes, that's right. And so no, no creature is the, in possession of its own being, not even the whole universe. And so at every instance that it is, it has to participate 
in the being of God in order to be. Otherwise, it wouldn't be at all. It never, God doesn't give something uh, existence and then it sustains itself because the existence something is, isn't its nature. It depends on him whose nature is to be in order to be. Think about, I guess maybe a cheap analogy is, is the light, the light bulb and the light switch, right? Um, the, it doesn't matter how much that light bulb sits there. If it's not turned on, it's not lighting up. So it, that light switch, that actualization has to happen in order for it to, to be. And if you cut that switch off, that light goes out. Same with existence, right? And so if anything is, so, so I mean, this is a lot of very abstract talk, but let, let's break it down to the concrete. What it means is, is God's relation to the creation then is radically different than these pagan visions. Because in the pagan visions, God is basically um, one bigger cause in a shared world of causes. So if God does something, it's either going to crush us or he's got to make space for us, right? But in this sense, the whole creation, the whole of creation is something in which it, it, is, a, it is its own order of cause and action to which God in his order is sustaining and being and directing, and so there is no conflict between God doing something and the creation doing it because they're working on completely different orders of being. So the divine and the human can be united to one and not be in conflict because they're on two different orders of reality they're acting on. And so because of that, God can be so intimately close to our creaturely order that he is actually the source that's sourcing it, um, all the while so transcendent that he can never be located or trapped within it. God can be closer to you than your own self. That's the way Augustine puts it. So what that means is, is in Christ, the humanity of Christ is participating in the deity the way all creation does, depending completely on God for its being, and yet it's given its own order of creaturely action so that when the humanity is doing its thing, it's the humanity really doing its thing, all the while the divine is actualizing it, guiding and directing it. And so there isn't a conflict between the humanity and the deity. Whereas the other systems, because God was not truly transcendent, God could the only way God could be active is if it was in conflict with the creaturely and so, so therefore you have territorial gods, if you will, and, and things, things of that nature. Because, and so what happens is, that, you know, the, the, you, what happens is, as a result of this is you start to understand that when we talk of God classically, um, we have a different understanding going on um, than the pagan alternatives. God is not simply one reality being within within a fight and competition with other things. And so therefore God can be fully involved with everything and yet um, and yet not be not be hindering its flourishing or or anything of that nature. Uh, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I think this is a place where the the the, the subject of um, God's sovereignty and the subject of predestination uh really uh, need to be placed because I think uh, there is a, I think a tendency for us 
to object to, say, the doctrine of predestination because we're dealing, we're, we're, we're working with it in this sort of way that you just are, are, I've refuted, you know, kind of a competitive, you know, sort of understanding where God's will and my will are on the same plane and they're at, you know, at loggerheads, you know, it's sort of like the, the image of that Glenn's used to talk about, you know, uh, how, uh, we understand, um, uh, the, uh, sort of benefits that we see in a society be- and being distributed is a kind of a yeah. win-loss zero-sum game. We have a kind of win-loss zero-sum way of thinking when it comes to God's will and my will. Yeah. And so, uh, consequently, people who object to the doctrine of predestination, uh, they do so because of some of the assumptions that you just refuted, and they think that either God is, you know, uh, uh, a tyrant. <laughs> who is you know taking up more space in the in the sort of the moral realm than than we do and consequently we lose when he wins that's also one of the ways that people uh think about uh god's glory in other words when i'm worshiping god and glorifying god uh i'm in some sense losing uh you know in in the exchange rather than the classical understanding of god's glory is something that uh, proceeds from God and returns to God, and I'm just being caught up in the process. Uh, whereas I'm actually so I enjoy God. This is the way the you know the the catechism, you know, the shorter catechism puts it, it, the Westminster shorter catechism. So as God is glorified, I enjoy God. It's not as though um, you know I'm being drained like there's some kind of vampiric. Yeah. Uh, process going on here where God is deriving his glory from my my yeah. humiliation. Well, that, that, that point in particular, I mean, one way of putting it is if God's agency, if, if the byproduct of these councils and what they, in, they imply is that God's agency can be talked about as universal and immediate. In other words, God doesn't need a whole series of mediations to be present to everything that is created. But what it flip side of it is, is everything creaturely um, must be talked about in a Christian way as existing in relationship to that total and immediate dependence on God. So there is no autonomy in which a creature could ever be not determined at every instance of its being by this one. What it means to be a creature is first and foremost to have actually the God acting to to make one be. And so there is no, oh, I need to get God out of the picture in order for me to realize myself. That's, a, that's exactly what sin is, right? Um, and so the, what the, the Christian understanding, therefore, is the creature becomes what it is more fully, not by separating itself um, or getting a neutral space in which it has its own creatureliness, but as it is more intimately um, connected to its relationship to the God who is its creator. And that's, of course, what sin comes in and, and gets in the way of, right? And has to, has to be dealt with. So in other words, in salvation history, it's true. John the Baptist must decrease so Christ can increase, but not in terms of our creatureliness. In other words, I am always receiving my being and grace from God on the order of divine agency, whether I'm acting or not right? Whether I'm sleeping or I'm up walking, whether I'm doing works or not doing works. Why? Because my works aren't contributing to my save, salvation. 
I'm receiving grace on the level of divine agency as gift to me, and that is what actualizes me to be able to do to to be conformed to the image of Christ. So there is no there is no conflict there, and this is I think again sin is the conflict, um, and that's why we're putting off and putting on. But there's no conflict in towards my creatureliness and divine. Uh, Glenn, yeah, Tom, um, it's worth noting that. Every mythological system out there explains where the gods come from. There are origin stories for the gods, okay? Um, Except Genesis. Genesis is completely unique in that it simply starts with God already existing and then bringing everything else into existence. Um, That's one of the things that radically separates Uh, the Jewish world and Christianity and Islam, the great monotheistic religions, it radically separates them from pretty much everything else out there. Um, Just on that question of origin, because it assumes the existence of God who then becomes the origin of everything else. Um, You know, there there was an early church father whose name escapes me who uh, actually pointed out that when a monotheist and a polytheist use the word God, they don't mean the same thing by it. There's a radically different conception there. Yeah. Um, You know, so that I think is really kind of interesting. But the other part of it is that the fact that we're dealing with different orders of being means that there is... This explains how Jesus can be fully God and fully human. Unlike the pagan world where you get hybrids, demigods, um, Jesus can be fully God and the fullness of God can dwell in him while also being fully human because, again, they're not conflictual. They're, They're not in conflict with each other because they're completely different orders of being. But that brings us to another point that Athanasius talks about. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the statements that's easily misunderstood that he makes in On the Incarnation is God became man so that man can become God. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, The idea of the union of the human and the divine nature in Christ does a couple of things. One of them is it elevates the status of human beings into the stratosphere, way beyond anything conceivable otherwise. Um, Because now God shares a nature with us. And you've got to put it that way. It's not we share a nature with God. It's God is now sharing a nature with us, which elevates our nature to a whole nother level, potentially at least, as we we live in Christ. Um, And it brings us into this whole realm of theosis and things like that. It's only... In the hypostatic union, the union of God and man in Jesus, that theosis actually becomes possible. This this idea of, of becoming partakers of the divine nature and so on. Yes, that's the yeah, and this gets to a great point because the classic Christian vision that that grew out of these debates. When uh, we talk about today in theological circles is having a metaphysics of participation, right? The way in which the creature participates in the divine, not in the sense of becoming the nature God, 
but by by having a creaturely share in the divine life. It's it's what it means to be the glorification glorification as we would understand it in the West tends to be what is meant by uh, deification or theosis in, in, in the East and in, in the early church. And so a metaphysics of participation is very interesting because what it says, for example, is um, on, the, on just the, the bare creaturely level is that the way in which creation, therefore, is related to God is not like God is, at the, you know, as we said, sharing this great chain of being is at the head and therefore is either in conflict or in harmony with it. But everything we say as creatures can basically be said of God, except for it just means more when it's applied to God. What the metaphysics of participation says, it, it, this is why the early church and the early theologians, even Aquinas and then even the, the a lot of the scholastic reformers and Turretin would use something called the theology of the divine names, right? Um, so they didn't talk about an attribute of God the way we in the West now talk about it. For example, God is, you know, goodness, right? Um, uh, you know, perfect or all good um, or all powerful. Um, the way we talk about it today owes itself to a different metaphysic, which I think has returned to the pagan vision in many ways. But the way they talked about it then is that it is, it is simply a name for God, so all of, all of creation, because creation is God's creation, has certain perfections in it. It, it, can be the, it can manifest the glory of God. Why? Because, well, goodness, truth, beauty, the transcendentals, but, but all of the things about creatureliness that are good can in some way um, be an analogy of the creator, which is their source. But they're always a creaturely share in that. They are never the divine source. So no creaturely thing can circumscribe God and what good goodness is as applied to God, it can simply be a name we can apply to God. Um, so when we talk about existence, that's a name for God. That doesn't mean God shares an existence the way I share an existence. It means God is existence, and any share of existence I have is by me participating in the reality that is his name. And, and so when God names I am, in the ancient world, name and metaphysic were together like this. This is why you don't use the name of the Lord God in vain. Why? You're you're violating that that you're deal you're sinning against the reality when you sin using the name the wrong way. But in the modern world, much like the pagan world, um, and you have big defenders now. I'm starting to see people all over, even in the reformed world, who don't like or don't aren't familiar with the patristic literature. They see it only through the lens of, of von Harnack and, and his evangelical uh, uh, you know, <laughs> defenders. And so they've returned to the alternative, is, which is something that is kind of you would call a, a ontology of sameness, right? Um, Post-SCOTUS, we've talked about this, in which basically God is, if we talk about existence, this isn't God, a, a name of God that, that is something true of God and only in a creaturely way true of us. It is basically something that God and humans both share in. So take existence. Existence is its own almost abstract ideal, if you will, or its own something, and God participates in it and creatures. So God is an existence itself. Rather, God shares an existence just in a bigger way than I do. But do you notice how we're already inside of the same circle? And now the, the there's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I saw something here recently uh, by a um, 
open theist who's of, of my acquaintance, and uh, he had uh, edited a book on creation, Ex Nihilo, mm-hmm. in which a number of the essays were actually refuting creation, Ex Nihilo. So in other words, the, getting back to your point here, Tom, mm-hmm. that uh, if we, if we um, lose this, uh, this vision or this understanding of of God as uh, the tra- transcendent source of all being, then we re-submerge uh, uh, our understanding of God in a kind of uh, single layer of reality. And what that, I think, necessarily, uh, uh, you know, what necessarily follows from that is that creation doesn't owe its existence to God. There's some sense in which God is co-extant with it. Some yes. kind of eternal stuff or yeah. whatever he may order it, uh, but that's exactly where you where where you know you you see all of the uh, the myth- mythologies uh, begin. Well, and that's you know yeah. some some kind of conflict. Yeah, and there is there there is the, the conflict is at the heart of these alternatives, and then there is God now has to enter into a relation that is real, as real for God as it is to creatures. In other words, God is almost just as dependent for God to be God as creator as the creation is to have a creation. This is where, in, like today, we see in theological personalism, this view that God is basically a, 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 bigger, a big pers- bigger person, the biggest person around, if you will, in relationship with a personal creation. Now, it is true God is personal, love and will, intelligence, um, as the divine naming the divine nature, um, but God is not personal in the in a univocal in a same but bigger way the way we're personal right, um, and so because of that, um, well, well, because this idea has really entered into the evangelical world in particular, um, because I think for them it, it allows for a hyper literalistic a univocal, a one-to-one reading of the Bible to make sense. And so once you've adopted that, that kind of flat hyper-literalism that, you know, when, you know, God changes his mind, well, God must have really changed his mind, you know, this kind of, um, the way I change my mind, right, but just in a bigger and more important way. Um, but, but they don't realize they're importing also a metaphysic that is foreign to the rest of scripture that says, you know, as far as, you know, east to the west, so are my ways different than yours. These things aren't, aren't measured into that configuration. Um, but the other thing is, is I sadly think what they do is create basically God as a big creature who needs to be actualized by a real infinite source of all things, which would also have to account for this being who is not complete in order to be. Because, you know, and so they get into all kinds of problems. Uh, Chris and then Glenn, I can kind of go down. Yeah, I, I think I think that the, the language that is, uh, is sort of very uh, common in evangelical surface, circles of a personal relationship with, with God or uh, even uh, the term relational theology uh, is actually uh, reflecting what you just described. It sounds... Uh, you know, terribly relevant and pious, uh, but it uh, has the potential to lead to all sorts of things. And I know people who love the language of relation. Yeah. You know, but what they're what they're what they're importing uh, into their understanding is what you just described—that God is uh, relating to me in the same way I relate to anyone else. Uh, 
rather than the kind of uh, ultimate dependency that we have upon the source of all things being itself. Um, so it, 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 I think it's all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. the large, by and large, the evangelical world is completely, uh, you know, sort of, uh, in sort of operating within the framework of this sort of sub-Christian framework that you've just described. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Glenn. Yeah. And, uh, the thing that this has been running through my head and I just got to get this out of my system <laughs> is, um, from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> which if you've got the right or maybe the wrong kind of mind is probably the greatest collection of sermon illustrations in history. <laughs> um, D- Douglas Adams' father was a theologian and his mother was a nurse, huh. um, it, which bodes ill for my kids. Lynn was a nurse. Um, but... but um, I'm, I'm not going to go through this, but there is a section where he's explaining the Babel fish that is used as proof for the non-existence of God. Hmm. And for those of you who have access to the book, look it up. And it's exactly the sort of thing Tom is talking about here. <laughs> I'm not going to, to, to go through the whole thing. That would just sort of move from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> um but it's, um, you know, it's, it's a great illustration of it. And it, it's a, a wonderful illustration, actually, of several things, not the least of which is that if someone is already convinced, no amount of evidence is going to change him from that position if he's holding it for uh, reasons other than, well, reason. So, yeah, right. but anyway, uh, the, the other thing, though, that, that kept coming to me through this is the the idea we have within evangelicalism, and I think this is kind of where, where Chris was, what Chris was talking about as well, of, uh, well, it was parodied in a terrible movie. Uh, I forgot the name of it off the top of my head, by George Carlin, in which he presented, he was playing a Catholic priest who is presenting the updated view of Jesus and it was what he called Buddy Jesus. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, um, um, you know, this this idea that we can relate to God like our big buddy, like our friend. You know, I mean, friend, yeah, uh, in one sense. Jesus calls us his friends. Mm-hmm. But we there, there seems to be an utter loss, it seems to me, of concepts of transcendence when we are talking about God. We tend to fall far more on the category in, into the, the area of, of over-familiarity mm-hmm. than we do with real awe, worship, and those kinds of things. And I think a lot of this is really revolves around this idea of the loss of, the, of, of even a basic understanding of what transcendence means. That's right, and I think you're right on. I think you're seeing that that uh, those are expressions that we're we become very familiar with, at which God is domesticated. Um, becoming incarnate is not domesticating the divinity. Um, it, 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 that's there. That's what ends up happening. Yeah, I remember going to a, a church a long time ago, and the guy would come up in prayer, "Hey, God, how you doing?" You know. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, I was out very quickly. Um, but but it, there, there is this way in, in which they, they think that because we have 
that that barrier has been broken down. We are now sons and daughters um, and and uh, friends of God. Therefore, that gets has to be interpreted the way a human friendship is is interpreted. There is continuity, but only analogously. It, it radically means something different in relationship to the triune God who is the infinite source of our very breath. And so one of the things you notice in early worship language and, and even older hymnody is that because it still worked with this classical view of God and classical use of analogy, you tended to see in, its, in the liturgy and the worship and the hymns, in, the, in scripture and the hymns, metaphor and uh, metaphysics and language used in a much more robust sense than either a crass literalism um, or, or a kind of metaphor that distance one from the reality. Because what you have, in cre- the whole of creation are refractions of something of the creation before sin gets in. And therefore, all of these, this language of the whole of creation, when referring to God the right way, can be non-idolatrous because it's referring to him who preeminently is all these things. So if we see something good, it can, as Jesus said, well, there are none good but one. But once one understands to see them in the light of the one who is the source of all goodness— we can also see refractions of that in the world. What is the glory of God? But the way in which when we truthfully enact our creatureliness in Christ, we begin to analogously refract God in the world again, right? And so you can begin to see what creation was attended to. And you can name God from these non-idolatrously because you're not saying, for example, that God is good the way I'm good, but the fact that there is any goodness in the world shows that there is one who preeminently is the one who is goodness itself. And therefore, analogous language allows us to, whereas univocal, it's it's competition. Oh, if God is good, nothing else can be good, right? Um, it's that kind of conflict. Um, Chris? Yeah, yeah, we, we're kind of getting to that point in the in the show where we need to kind of wrap things up. Maybe we need to do a show on univocity uh, in <laughs> the next... Uh, few weeks to kind of get at univocal, uh, that term that probably has a lot of people turning to their Google uh, search <laughs> engines to find out the meaning of at the moment. But but uh, we just want to say to the folks out in podcast land, we know that sometimes we use terms that uh, don't get used every day at work <laughs> or in your home, but they're important words and, we, and we're glad to talk about them and define them. But anyway, uh, anything you want to say, Glenn, as we as we wrap up? Yeah, I, I want to just add a couple of uh, general comments here. First of all, about one of the problems we have in evangelicalism today, and this will go right up your alley, Chris. Um, the idea of God as Father, we have lost the idea of what fathers are supposed to be. All right. Which is why even referring to God, I mean, people tell you Abba means daddy. No, it doesn't. It, it, it's, got, it's got much more serious implications than that. Right, right. But, but, you know, my wife taught preschool and she said that one of the biggest problems that she had was telling parents that they had to be parents. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not their preschoolers' friends. They're their right. parents. Yeah. They call the shots. Right. You know, yeah. and, you know, we, so we've kind of lost that. But the other thing that I just want to say, too, is that, you know, coming, coming to the idea of the incarnation, there is a degree of wonder that we ought to have about this in light of the kinds of things Tom is talking about. I mean, think about it. The unchanging and unchangeable God changes. 
the origin of all things gets something he never had before, a human nature. The incarnation, no matter how much evil and suffering there is in the world, what the incarnation says is that it is better, it's tough to say this, but in a lot of ways, we are better because Adam and Eve fell than we would have been if they weren't, if they hadn't. Because if they hadn't, the incarnation would never have happened. And our ability to be united with God, because he was united with us, would never have happened. I mean, there, there's just stunning number of implications around this that I don't think people even have a clue about. And the key really involves transcendence entering into the finite world of creation. Well, Glenn, you've planted a lot of seeds at the very end of the show (laughs) 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 that'll have people like sending us notes for the next two or three months. (laughs) So sooner or later, we'll have to get into these things in more depth. (laughs) Otherwise, uh, people will be just sort of, I don't know, uh, just sitting at home pondering things and not able to get out of the house and go to work or spend any time. <laughs> but anyway, uh, with, with those thoughts in mind, anything you want, you want to say, uh, Tom, as we wrap up? Uh, no, I think it was, uh, you know, I kind of tied a lot of threads I've worked on before, but I think it really comes to con- concentration in when they work out, the church works out the, the language and categories of the Trinity and the incarnation. And yes, we still deal with this in theology and in the church today. Um, I don't have, didn't have time to go into a lot of those. It enters in the realm of, of politics and, and uh, competitive relationships versus gift character relations. I mean, it enters into everything once, once we get this stuff going. So I think we got a lot of other episodes where we can kind of pick up on some of these themes as they get more particular and just show how important what happened then was, not only in, in referring to the, the true divinity and true humanity, but also the implications of that for everything else. Sounds good. Well, we really appreciate uh, your interest in our show, The Theology Podcast, and we've had uh, a lot of folks send us notes. We've had a lot of folks uh, contribute to the expenses that uh, – you know, have to be, uh, ma- you know, paid for. Uh, and we appreciate those folks who do those, those things. And uh, we hope that you've gotten something uh, worthwhile out of today's conversation. And uh, we're looking forward to, to being together again here. We're going to take a little break for a few weeks because Christmas is coming up. And, uh, but we'll be back and uh, conducting more shows and uh, getting, getting uh, you know, kind of things rolling in 2022. 2022. Anyway, it's the it's 2022. I found out just the just uh, yesterday is the is the year in which Soylent Green is set. Uh, so anyway, with that that happy thought, you, if you want to you want to know what I just referred to, look up uh, you know Soylent Green, and you'll discover a film starring Charlton Heston about a very <laughs> dystopian world <laughs> that uh, is set in the year 2022. Glenn, I know you're you're just chomping at the bit to say something at this point. Oh, I, I just remember actually, this literally happened. I walked into a McDonald's once and saw a sign that said. People are most important ingredient. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Soylent Green, it's people. Anyway, with that thought, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>